We are in the last week of this series called Timeless Messages. We've been walking through uh, the minor prophets. Um, I, for one, am a little bit sad this week if I've been thinking about this series ending. I have loved teaching the series. Uh, I have felt like God has given me a lot to think about, a lot to apply as I've been working through this. I hope that it's been the same experience uh, for you as well over the last several weeks. Um, and here's what I would say. If you take nothing else from the minor prophets, uh, take this. There is a clarion call, a very clear, loud call in these prophetic books to pay close attention to your life. Pay close attention to your, your walk with God, to examine your ways, to examine your, your, your devotion to God on a regular basis. When we sing the songs like we sang this morning, there's nothing, nothing is better than you. Are those songs really true in your life? When we're doing worship, when you're listening to a message, ask yourself, is this really true of who I am? Here's the deal. Having a dynamic walk with God doesn't just happen. It's not like we say yes to Jesus, we get zapped by the Holy Spirit, and voila, we're mature and we make great decisions. It just doesn't work that way. The walking with God is a journey, and it's a journey that ebbs and flows, and that what you need is to be faithful along the journey. You need to stop and, and be intentional and ask yourself, how am I doing? Where am I on track and where am I off track? Where am I distracted? Where do I need to refocus? That is a big part of the Minor Prophets, is just reminding us over and over that we need to return to God. Be intentional in your walk with Jesus. And I would say this again, you cannot walk faithfully with Jesus in isolation. You need to gather people around you who will help you, who are also on that journey, encouraging you, challenging you, helping you along the way. You cannot walk faithfully with Jesus in isolation. You are no more capable of walking with Jesus in isolation than a baby can raise itself. You need intentionality and you need people and community around you. So before we jump into the book of Malachi, the last of the minor prophets, I want to take my last shot at reminding you of the big six. These were the six messages uh, that are woven throughout the minor prophets. The idea was that if you have these in mind as you're reading the minor prophets, it's going to be easier for you to understand, to digest what's going on. God is sovereign. God is not surprised by anything that's going on in your life or anything that's going on in the world. Right? He doesn't look at what's happening in the Ukraine and be like, I didn't see that coming. Right? God is sovereign. He knows all of the events. No atom exists. Right? No event occurs outside of God's sovereignty. God hates sin. We're going to see that very clearly as we look at Malachi today. God loves and expects justice. As a matter of fact, what we've learned is as we follow God passionately, justice ought to be an automatic outflowing of who we are. It ought to flow out of this place like a river. God abounds in steadfast love. His mercies are new every morning. That's a good thing, and we are the benefactors of that. God is calling us to return to him. If we're in chapter 3 of Malachi, it says these words, return to me and I will return to you. Have you heard that almost every week? You have, because it's woven through almost every single one of the minor prophets. Return to me and I will return to you. And Jesus is coming. Now, the minor prophets were talking about Jesus coming is first coming, but we live in an era where we know that Jesus has come and Jesus is coming again. So that's the big six. So grab your Bibles, turn to Malachi, last of the minor prophets, the last book of your Old Testament. We're in chapter four. I'm going to read verses one through three of chapter four. I want to remind you to have a Bible with you, bring your Bible with you, uh, have your Bible open to the passage if you need a Bible. And so there's one under your seat. I think we're on page 802. 
think it says it up there somewhere. Yep, page 802. If you don't have a Bible at home and you're here in the building, uh, feel free to take those red Bibles that are in your seat. Take them home with you. If you need a Bible, use it. If you don't have a Bible and you're online, swing by the church anytime, knock on the door, hit the little buzzer, and we would be happy to give you a Bible that you can use at home. We want you to have a Bible. If you are sitting in your living room or however you are watching this with your family, I encourage you to have a Bible in front of everybody. Even if you have children with you, have a Bible for them. It's going to help you to navigate the scriptures better. <laughs> Take notes, write in the margins, underline keywords, uh, do whatever you got to do. A little bit of context before I read Malachi chapter 4. Um, Malachi takes place... Uh, arrives on the scene after the exiles have returned from 70 years. Remember, they were in exile for 70 years. They were allowed to come back. It's after that, so they've been back. They've built the temple. They've built their homes. And this probably, although we're not positive, most historians can't really say biblical historians, but it, it appears that it takes place after Nehemiah. So you remember the story of Nehemiah? He arrives on the scene after the temple was built. He helps to build the walls. And if you go back and you read Nehemiah, there is a uh, a great revival that happens in Nehemiah. And most experts think that this is happening after that revival. The heat of that revival has gone cold. And this is really the last of the prophetic books that go out to the people in the Old Testament because things have gone awry. And the overarching message to the people, if you, you have not been faithful to me, and there's going to be dire consequences. So if you want to know what the theme, that's the theme. So why don't you stand with me as I read Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under your soles of your feet. On that day I will act, says the Lord of hosts. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for uh, the minor prophets. Thank you, especially for Malachi today. Thank you for how you have... Uh, opened your word to us, how you are going to speak uh, this morning. I do pray that you speak a word of truth. I pray that uh, every person in this room, every person on this broadcast would hear a word directly from your Holy Spirit, that they would leave different than they came because they've interacted with you. Let the words that I speak that are from you fall on fertile soil and bear fruit. Anything that I say that's not of you would it just fall away. Thank you for an opportunity for us to gather together in corporate worship, for us to sit under the teaching of the word. Help us to be good stewards with the freedom we have to gather in this room together to be the church that you've called us to be here on this corner. Let's call this in Jesus' name. Amen. So keep your Bibles open to the book of Malachi. We're going to actually look at quite a few different passages in this book. And if it's open, it'll be easier for you. But the writer has just written three chapters of scathing indictments against the people of Israel. Right? He's, he's basically told them there, there's all kinds of things wrong. And now he's reminding them that all of them will stand before God on that great day of the Lord. That the day of judgment is coming when, when you will stand before God. And what he's saying in this passage is, is perfectly clear. That there's going to be two very distinct 
opportunities, two distinct ways that this day of the Lord is going to take place. The first one is that everything you thought you did for God, everything you did out of your religious scurrying, to use a lot of the minor prophet language, everything you did that really wasn't from the right heart is going to burn up and it's going to fall away. It's going to be consumed in the flames. And some passages say at that moment there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But look at verse 2 of the passage I read. It says, but for you who fear my name, we're going to talk about what that means in just a minute, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So it's two choices, right? It's weeping or leaping. Like, what are you going to choose, weeping or leaping? It's door number one or door number two. I don't know about you, but I would like to choose Door number two, it sounds a lot better. I'd rather go out of the stall leaping than weeping. How it all goes for us on the great day of the Lord all depends on how we respond to the invitations of God in our lives, the invitations of God in our lives. The movement of God always starts with an invitation. God is always inviting you to more. God is always inviting you to go deeper. God is always inviting you to grow more and more like Jesus. God is always inviting, and we are either in the process of accepting those invitations or rejecting those invitations. And here's what I want you to hear this morning. If you approach your walk with God as a list of do's and don'ts, if you live by this legalistic code, you will always... Hear me, church, you will always fall short. But if you approach your walk with God with the understanding of invitation, there is something inviting about having that perspective. If you see the ways of God as an invitation for more of God, if you see it as a way to experience more of God, you will naturally make better decisions. Let me say that again. If you see the ways of God as invitations from God, Right, Not as a list of do's and don'ts, but as invitations from God to experience more of him, you will naturally make better decisions. There's this reoccurring word in Malachi that we have to unpack, and, and it's addressed several times in it, but, but here's what it says. Look at verse 2. It says, but for you who fear my name. Whenever I preach on the fear of the Lord, I always get... A, a wide array of responses back through email or through conversations down front. And there's some people who are like, you just weren't strong enough. They want more hellfire, brimstone, teach on the fear of the Lord, scare the heck out of them. Literally, I didn't say the word, but you know what I mean, right? Like they want more. And then there's some people who are like, no, we, just, we want more grace. I have actually a really good friend who says, we shouldn't even talk about the fear of the Lord because it's so confusing, Right, But the problem is it's in the Bible 134 times. Fear of the Lord, fear of God, 134 times. So we need to understand, well, well, what does it mean? And the problem is the word fear in Scripture is the same word, have two very distinct meanings. Right, It can mean dread or anxiousness or deep concern. Or on the other hand, the word fear can mean awe or reverence. Fear of the Lord, in this case, has little to do with dread or terror. After all, the scriptures tell us that perfect love casts out all fear. And who is perfect love more than God? No one. God's perfect love actually casts out fear. So the irony is, if we 
are in awe of God, if we have reverence towards God, if we know who God is, then we have no reason to be afraid of the things of the world, right? So here your fear of God helps to dispel the fear of the world. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. So fear of the Lord, when we read that passage, it's, it's, it, what is Malachi talking? He's talking about awe, he's talking about respect, he's talking about honor. Not so much an, an inward emotion, right? It's not so much about how we feel, it's about, it's about this movement towards God. It's about earnestly wanting and knowing who God is. As a matter of fact, if you fear God's name, if you fear the Lord, it will naturally translate into ethical conduct. So here's the best way I can summarize it. In the ancient world, right, in the Hebrew language, fear of the Lord was, was best described as supreme devotion. Supreme devotion. Why do they call a supreme pizza a supreme pizza? <laughs> it's not a trick question. Why? Because it's got everything on it, right? Everything. What God wants is your full, absolute devotion. So this is what I want you to hold on this morning. Fear of the Lord. It's awe, it's respect, it's honor, it's supreme devotion. All of those words together give us this sense of what God is calling us to in the book of Malachi. God desires supreme, ultimate devotion. He wants our whole hearts. I said in the announcement video that we have something here called the six essentials, and all of them are necessary if you want to grow in your walk with God. So six essentials are that you gather. There's something that happens when we are together is the body of Christ in this room, worshiping together, listening to the teaching together. There's something that happens in this room that can't be replicated anywhere else. You can't do it in a small group that you need to connect you cannot walk faithfully with Jesus in isolation. I already talked about it. You need to serve. We already talked about that this morning. Generosity is the idea of being open-handed with everything that God has given you. Influence is the idea that you are sharing your faith with other people. And then there is this word devotion. And if I were to redo this graphic, I would put devotion right at the very center of our six essentials. Because you cannot do any of the six essentials well unless you are fully devoted to God. So when we say devotions, we're not talking about devotionals, although you probably need to have some type of quiet time devotional in your life. We're talking about a heart that is fully devoted to God. The scriptures say that the eyes of the Lord search throughout the whole earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully devoted to him so that he can show himself strong on their behalf. Not devotionals, but to be supremely devoted to him. And Malachi is pointing out that, that if you are not fully devoted to him, if you're doing anything out of your own strength or for your own way, if you're doing religious scurrying, it's all going to burn up in the furnace. We've seen this week after week in our study of the minor prophets, that God is not impressed with your religious activities. He wants your heart. He wants your full devotion. So we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to look at the earlier chapters of Malachi and we're going to see the fallout of not fearing the Lord, of not having uh, the supreme devotion to God. So in chapter one, God says to the people, you should honor me. You should have supreme devotion to me because I love you. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. But throughout the book of Malachi, God makes a statement, a declaration, and then the people ask a question back to God. So in this case, he says, I love you. And the people say, 
say, sorry, I have loved you, says the Lord. And the people say back to him, but how have you loved me? Right? How have you loved us, God? And then he says these crazy words. Look at the very beginning of, the, of Malachi. It says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Harsh words. Right? They actually seem very out of character for God. How is it that God loves Jacob and hates Esau? Well, the problem is we don't really understand the nuances of the ancient language. For us, love and hate in our, in our American culture and our American language, they are more about emotions or feelings, right? They, we love somebody, we have this warm fuzzy about them. If we hate someone, we wanna punch them in the nose, right? It's more about this, this, this feeling inside. But, but in this passage, we are not describing God's feeling towards Esau, God's feeling towards Jacob. We are describing God's action. And God has moved on Jacob's behalf. He's moved on behalf of the Israelite people. He has chosen the Israelite people. He has made a covenant with the Israelite people. So it's just as well to say, I have chosen Jacob and I have rejected Esau. Now, it's interesting if you go back and you look at history, that Esau's descendants became the Edomites, and the Edomites actually participated, in, in, they were in cohorts with Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, when they took all of the people into exile for 70 years, it was Esau's descendants that worked alongside Nebuchadnezzar to take the people hostage. And God is saying to the people, I have rejected Esau and his descendants, but I have chosen you. I have showed you love. I have made a covenant with you. I have made myself known to you. So what's the application here? If you are in this room or if you are listening online and you know Jesus, it's only because Jesus has revealed himself to you. You didn't figure this out on your own. Jesus chose you and reveals himself to you. He says, I love you, I've chosen you. Now honor me with your life. I have made you a son, I have made you a daughter. Now honor me because I love you. He says through the prophet, I have loved you, yet you have not honored me. You've not been supremely devoted to me. Look at verse six, again in chapter one, it says, God says, worse yet you despise me. You despise me. And then the people ask again the, the question, how have we despised you? How have we despised your name? Much of Malachi is answering that very question. How have we despised your name? Or I would say it this way, how have we failed to honor God? First look at verse seven. Verse seven says, by offering polluted food on my altar, the people were told to offer the best of the best to offer a, an animal that was unblemished from their livestock, the very best of their first fruits. Bring that to God, the best of their harvest. But instead, they were bringing God this damaged goods, blind animals. It says lame, sick animals were being brought and put on the altar. These animals have no value to the people that are offering them. So they give them to be sacrificed, and God's not very impressed Right? He's not impressed with their lame gifts. Look at what it says in verse 8. I love this. He says, present that to your governor. Present that to your political leader. 
and see if he accepts, see if she accepts what you show and gives you favor. I want you to imagine for a moment that uh, an important dignitary is coming over to your house for dinner. Somebody who has the ability to affect your employment or your social standing. And the custom is when they come to your home, you're going to give them a gift. So imagine what you would go through in your mind, thinking, okay, he or she is coming to my house. What am I gonna give that person that is going to show them that I honor them, that I respect them? There is zero chance that you would give them a lame gift, right? You would put a lot of thought into it. Imagine if you were giving a gift. So I brought a few gifts as I thought about this. So they come over to the house and you say to yourself, well, I'm gonna give them a TV, right? Well, Kind of, so I have this TV. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna give it to whoever wants it, but I don't need to tell you first, it doesn't work. It's a broken TV, but Mario, I want you to have this TV, okay? It's just for you. Doesn't work, or what? but hey, good news is I still have a cord and a remote control, so you now have a broken TV that's just for you, because I love you, man. Really, I love you. Do you believe me? Not so much. I went through my junk drawer this morning and I have this watch. I've had this watch for a long time. I don't even know how long. This watch is probably 30 years old. Just so you know, it doesn't keep time. Well, except for twice a day. It's perfect twice a day. You laughed at the first service when I said that joke. Anyway, I, I have this watch and really I want you to have this watch just because I love you. You can get it later. I know you want it. You can get it later. Or how about this chair? It only has three legs. But if you want, and you know, the reality is, if you're careful, you can still sit on it. So it's still a good chair. It's just not a really good chair. Right? We would never do that, would we? Right? You would never give people lame gifts. As a matter of fact, a bad gift is worse than no gift at all. Right? If you don't give me a gift because you forgot me, then I can say, well, they forgot. It's okay. But if you actually remember me and you give me a broken TV, a broken watch, or a three-legged chair, then I'm just offended or hurt. Right, because now you've thought of me and you've, you've gone out of your way to make it even worse. Present that to your governor. See if, if they'll take the gift that you give. But here, it actually gets worse. Not only are they bringing in bad stuff, look at what it says in verse 13. You bring what has been taken by violence. You steal stuff. So hey, this is not my guitar. Does anybody want this guitar? Sure, of course you do, but it's not very generous of me to give you John's guitar, right? You steal stuff and you put it on the altar. Listen to what, what God says. He says, you, you've made a vow to me that you're gonna give the best of the best. You sing songs to me that you're gonna give God my everything. And he says, but when you don't, you're a cheat. Don't get mad at me, you can get mad at God. That's what Malachi actually writes. When you say you're gonna do one thing, but you do something completely different, you are a cheat. The people ask, how have we failed to honor God? And he says, by offering polluted food on my altar. You give me your scraps. You give me your second best. You give me whatever's left over. And then the second thing it says is by turning away from your first love. Look at chapter two, verse 11. For Judah, the people of Israel, my people, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. He has married the daughters of foreign gods. Look at verse 14, it says, but you say, why does he not 
Because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. If you study the book of Malachi, you find out there's all kinds of debate. Was this figurative or was this literal? Right? Because sometimes when we read about the idolatry of the people, they weren't actually uh, being idolatrous to their wives. They were being idolatrous to God. God was, was their God. They were the, supposed to be uh, the, the bride to God, but they were idolatrous, right? And they, and they f- worshiped foreign gods. So was it literal or was it figurative? Were they actually leaving their wives of their youth and and being divorced and going with other women. And the truth of the matter is, I don't know why there's a debate because there's no doubt in my mind, it was both. It was both because whenever you turn away from God, families are always the first thing to fall apart. You wanna know why Christian marriages fail at the same rate of non-Christian marriages? It's because God isn't at the center for both the husband and the wife, both the husband and the wife are not supremely devoted to God. As a matter of fact, the only insurance you have for a great marriage is that both of you are actively and fully pursuing God in your life. It's the only way to ensure a healthy relationship. We dishonor God when we turn to false gods. And we turn to false gods, you know, most of us probably aren't guilty of worshiping uh, some foreign object, some foreign god, some statue. You know, we don't come out of a culture where we're confused by that, but we still do it all the time. Anytime you trust in something other than God for your comfort or for your prosperity, anytime you trust in anything other than God, even yourself, it's idolatry. How have we failed to honor God? We offer polluted food upon the altar. We turn away from God, our first love, and by robbing him. Look at chapter three, verses eight through 10. When I think of Malachi, this is the section that always comes to mind. This is the uh, tithing section that every preacher has preached when they want to stir the crowd to give more money. Uh, So yeah, you're all like, yeah, yeah. Now you can hear me, Uh uh-huh, sure. All right, verse eight says, well, a man robbed God. Yet you're robbing me because you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contribution? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you, all of you, all of you Israelites, you're robbing me. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, and there will maybe food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Whenever I do the Discover Grace, you guys know what Discover Grace is, is that class we have where we invite everybody that's new, they come, and we just want to tell them who we are as a church, how we think, what our theology is, and I always start with a whiteboard exercise where I say, ask me anything you want, anything at all, I'm going to write down the questions, and then I'm going to teach to the question that you guys, and that, that kind of gets me to talk what they want to hear as opposed to what I think they want to hear. Every time, without fail, I've never done this class, I've been doing it for a long time now, probably a decade, um, the question always comes up, how does the church, what is the church's stance on tithing? Are we supposed to give 10% or are we free from the law of Moses? It's almost worded that way every single time. And here's the deal. We can talk about tithing. It can be a whole sermon, but I just want to touch on a few things that, that we need to know, just a few observations 
The word tithe means 10%. They just, that's what the word means. In the Old Testament, the people were actually required to give more in different occasions through the festivals and stuff, but a good rule of thumb is that they were told to tithe, which means 10%. And the answer to the question is, are we bound to the Mosaic law? The answer is no. We're not bound to the law of Moses, but we certainly can learn from the law of Moses. We can ask ourselves the question, well, why did it even exist? What was God up to in the idea of tithing? And you can even ask the same question about the Sabbath. Why did God say, work for, for six days, but rest on the seventh day? And why in the world would God ask an agrarian society who's totally dependent on the crops that they plant to take every seventh year and don't plant any crops? Radical Radical stuff, to give away the best of your stuff back to God, to take a day off and stop working. Even if it's rained for six days and on the seventh day you finally can work in the field, it doesn't work. We want you to take a day off. Why would God put all those things into place? Because God wanted the people to live by faith. You see, Sabbath and tithing, they were all acts of faith. God wanted them to see, if you will follow these processes, if you will do what I'm calling you to do, I will show you who your provider really is. This was a big moment for me along the way when I was trying to figure this all out, and I felt very clear that God said to me, if you are not willing, if you and Meg are not willing to give me 10%, then it's because you don't trust me. It's because you think you are your own provider. You know what that is? That's idolatry. I went through the same process, Meg and I praying about how and when we should take a Sabbath, and we're pretty, pretty serious about our Sabbath. It starts Friday at noon and goes Saturday to noon, and, and we're pretty careful to protect that day whenever possible. Obviously, there's times where there's a funeral or something, and I have to step in, but, but that's our Sabbath. And I remember God saying, if you are not willing to stop for one day a week, stop running on the treadmill, it's because you don't trust me. You think you're your own provider, Again, that's idolatry. We believe here at Grace that the heart of discipleship, the heart of discipleship is that you learn to hear the voice of God in your life and act in obedience. If you are a person who can hear and obey, hear God in the scriptures, hear God through the Holy Spirit, hear God through the community, hear God through a sermon, but if you learn to hear and obey. And here's the deal, you are not bound to 10%. It's a great benchmark. All of us should strive to at least give 10%, but God may be calling you to give more, right? God may be, I have this conversation, seems like once a year, somebody says to me, you have no idea how much money I make. I couldn't possibly give the church 10%. They wouldn't know what to do with all that money. Okay, it's a good problem to have. But I also had the other conversation. I, I, couldn't, I can't give 10%. I, you just don't know how much debt I have, how much trouble. I, I get it. There's these two extremes. But what I am saying is it's a great benchmark. But, but we don't teach 10%. What we teach is hear and obey. And if you are willing to sit before God, if you and your wife or if you're single, you alone are willing to ask God, what should I give? What should I give? And if you hold that 10% loosely as a benchmark, God is going to say it. But if God says give 15%, and you give 7%, the passage is saying, you're robbing me because I told you what I wanted you to give. Why? Not because God needs the money, because God is trying to teach you what it means to walk by faith. So ask. 
Ask God, how much are you supposed to give? And then be obedient to what he says. The New Testament verse that really should guide us is 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Each one must give as he has decided prayerfully, as he thought about this, as he prayed about it. And God said, give this much. That's what you should give. And don't give it reluctantly, not because you have to, but because it's an invitation from God to grow in who you are as a person. Be cheerful in your giving. Decide beforehand. Do what God calls you to do. And if you know what you know, that God has said, give this much and you give less, just know what the passage says. You're robbing God. The people ask, how have we failed to honor God? By offering polluted food on the altar, by turning away from our first love, your first love, and by robbing him. You know, when we read scripture, uh, I think we ask ourselves the wrong question. Right, we look at the life of David and his, his mess up with Bathsheba, or we look at King Saul, or we look at Jonah for that matter, or we study the, the Israelite people and, and we see these incredible miracles. Look, the Red Sea parted. They crossed on dry ground and the Egyptian army was wiped out by God. Right? They got food from heaven and water from a rock. Right? They marched around the city of Jericho and the walls fell and their armies wiped out all of their enemies and they took possession of the promised land. And we say to ourselves, how could those people be so dull? How could they see God do all of these amazing things and still lack faith and faithfulness? It's the wrong question. The question is not how could they, the question we need to ask is how am I just like them? The question to sit with this morning is how have I failed to honor God? Where am I giving my second best, a broken TV, a three-legged chair, whatever I have left over and Whatever money I might have left, maybe I can make a little gift. Whatever time I have left, maybe I can serve somewhere. Where am I robbing God? He's not impressed with our second best. He wants supreme devotion. He wants our giving to flow out of our supreme devotion. The movement of God in your life always starts with an invitation. What is God inviting you to this morning? The scriptures say, search me and know me. God, see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What is the invitation from God this morning? I'm gonna do something a little bit different. I hadn't planned on doing this, but I did it at the first service as well. Um, and I actually saw this at the conference that we had here a couple weeks ago. Uh, Brother Rob did this and I just, I thought it was brilliant and immediately thought, I'm going to steal that. So here I am, stealing it. But it's a different kind of robbing than what I just talked about. What he said at the end of the conference was, what has God said to you over the course of this conference? I want you to write it down. And here's what I would say to you. We've spent 10 weeks in the Minor Prophets. And maybe you haven't been here for all 10 weeks, but you were here today. What is God saying to you? I want you to take out your phone, and I want you to write it in your notes. If you have a journal with you, if you're one of those people that you can write it in your journal, maybe write it in the margin of your Bible. What does God want you to hold on to from the minor prophets? What is God saying to you? I'm actually just gonna give you two minutes to answer that question. What is God saying to you? And if you weren't here, I understand that. If it's just this morning, just ask the Holy Spirit, what do you want me to hold on to 
now that this series is over with. So I'm going to just give you two minutes to write it down somewhere. Write it out. Sorry, don't mean to interrupt you while you're thinking. Dwayne is playing the piano, so if you could turn the sound on the piano, that would be great. So here's what I'd like you to do next, is I would like you to text whatever you heard, whatever you wrote to someone who will hold you accountable. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a friend who walks a journey with you. Just write it out. If you already wrote it out, just cut and paste it and send it to them, knowing that they will hold you accountable. That's why I thought it was so brilliant. Just kind of lock some things in. I know I sent something to Meg first service, and I know she'll ask me about it. We have some wonderful people that would love to meet with you and pray. If there's something that's stirring in you that's been, uh, you'd like to leave at the altar, we would love to pray that. If you just need to understand what it looks like to walk faithfully with Jesus, uh, they can help you with that as well. If you're online, there's a couple numbers on your screen. You can just dial either of those two numbers and they'll put you in a private uh, prayer appointment with somebody where they can pray for you, pray with you. Lord, I thank you that you give us the opportunity to return to you over and over in the minor prophets. Return to me and I will return to you. May we never stop returning to you. 
Help us to know those areas where we get off track, where we go astray. Thank you that you have chosen us, that you have made a covenant with us through your son, Jesus. Help us to walk faithfully in the understanding that we love because you first loved us. Thank you for the minor prophets. Thank you for this series. Pray that you would do immeasurably more than we can ask, think, or imagine according to the power of the spirit that's at work within us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here. See you next Sunday for Palm Sunday. And then Easter, if you're gonna volunteer for Easter, we'd love for you to stop at the information counter, let Paula know. You're welcome.